0: Well, good morning, church. It's so good to see you again. I'll be reading from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus did not, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He." This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning once again. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. That's the text that was just read. We're looking at verses 1 through 26. This is our Believe teaching series, working our way through the gospel according to John, and we know why the book was written. John tells us in John chapter 20, verse 31, these, these were written that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing we may have life in his name. And we're gonna talk about this weekend, Ultimate Satisfaction. I'm gonna start off by playing a song to you on my phone here this morning. Name that tune. See if you're familiar with this uh, particular song. You guys know that song? Let's see if you can sing this song. I can't get no satisfaction. Yeah. I've tried, and I've tried, and i tried. I can't. Yeah. How do you stop this? <laughs> well, that's pretty much all I have for you today. Let's stand for closing prayer. Oh no, we got a, we got a text here that we're gonna study. So uh, why would I play that song? Not because I necessarily like it. It's, it's kind of an interesting tune. Who played that song anyway? Rolling Stones. In fact, I found it interesting that some of you were actually singing better for that song than you did the previous <laughs> songs that we were singing. And that troubles me a little bit here, but uh, yeah. He's talking about something that's common with everybody on this planet Earth, this inconsolable human longing. Grab your sermon notes out, you'll see part of the intro of this study. The inconsolable human longing is very strong evidence that we were made to find ultimate satisfaction in the glory of God. Everybody on this planet Earth has an inconsolable human longing that nothing on the planet can satisfy It's only the creator of all things that can satisfy that deep longing. And so, something we talked about a few weeks ago, when I seek ultimate satisfaction in created things or temporal things and don't find it, I will do one of three things. The first thing is that I'll try harder. I'll go from relationship to relationship to relationship or job to job to job or bigger homes or nicer cars or whatever it is I just, I'm on this pursuit and I'll just keep trying harder or, I'll become bitter. I'll just throw in the towel and say, yep, that's just the way it is. I tried, I thought this marriage or this relationship or this thing or, or this new job would, would be all satisfying and I'm now I'm really upset because it isn't. And I see a lot of people that are very bitter. And I see a lot of people still chasing after this, this thing to try to fill this inconsolable human longing that only can be filled by God. So we do one of three things. We either try harder, become bitter, or we realize that I was made for another world, that only Christ can satisfy us. In fact, every created or temporal beauty is a gift from God and meant to lead our affections to him. So when you go out for lunch today, go to your favorite restaurant if you're going to do that, or eat your favorite dessert this afternoon, or or you sit outside and you watch the sunset and it's absolutely beautiful, we have beautiful sunsets here. Our tendency is to let our praise, our adoration, our thanksgiving to terminate on the created thing as opposed to allowing it to roll on up to the creator. It tells us in James chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, don't be deceived, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And so we kind of tend to miss the the experience by just focusing on the gift and not letting it roll on up to the gift giver. So we try to find our ultimate satisfaction in created things as opposed to the creator. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says, this is on your notes, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. Now, everybody look up here, you got to get this. Because this is at the root of all of your problems, all of my problems, all of the problems on this planet earth. It's all rooted right here, what he's saying. Everything that we have, all the sin and suffering is symptomatic of the fact that we try to find satisfaction in anything and everything other than God, the one who created us. And so everything you see on this planet is symptomatic of that, that problem. And this story is absolutely a beautiful story that helps us to understand that. In fact, let's begin through working through the notes and the story. We'll keep your Bibles open and we'll work through the text. Ultimate satisfaction is available to all. That's your first fill in the blank. The reason why I call it ultimate satisfaction is because certainly you can find a certain level of satisfaction in created things, but not ultimate satisfaction. So ultimate satisfaction is available to all. Look at starting with verse one of our text, chapter four of John. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making baptizing more disciples than John, and anytime John puts uh, words in parentheses, he's kind of giving commentary. This was written many years later, so he's kind of giving a lot of good commentary to this. He says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, he didn't have to pass through Samaria. Most uh, Jews didn't pass through Samaria. They went around Samaria, but he had to pass through Samaria for a divine appointment with this woman at the well. This was designed by by his Father in heaven, by the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life. And so it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Samaria was a region between Judea and Galilee where Jews of mixed blood lived. The Jews hated the Samaritans because they were no longer pure Jews and they were no longer pure Jews because of intermarriage with foreigners. And so the hatred continued down through the years. And so to walk through Samaria, it would take you three days. So keep in mind, Jesus is going from Judea to Galilee and he's gonna go through Samaria, and so that would take him three days, it's a three day journey. To walk around Samaria, which most Jews did, it would take you six days. So you know you have to hate somebody when you walk for three days in the desert to avoid them. (laughs) That's exactly what's going on. That's not going on with Jesus, but what was going on in that culture, that the Jews would walk around Samaria. They would add three days to their journey just to to avoid these people. They despised them. And so verse five, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Joseph's well was there. So Jesus wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well and it was about the sixth hour. So Jesus has been walking for days, is hungry and thirsty. It was noon time, the hottest part of the day. Jesus's weariness shows us his true humanity. Verse 7, and a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Here's parentheses again. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a a woman of Samaria? I mean, she's shocked. And uh, he, he says here in parentheses, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Now, in verse 27, you'll see that when the disciples come back from town with food, they're also shocked. They can't believe that Jesus is interacting with this woman of Samaria at this well. They're going to be blown away. Now, two unusual facts about the woman's actions here. Number one is that she she could have gone to a closer well. Scholars have identified wells that were much closer than this well. And then, Another interesting fact is that women generally drew water early or later in the day when the temperature was cooler. In fact, it was kind of a social gathering with the women. They would socialize during that time. She came at noon almost to avoid all of the socializing. So this would be likened to the women coming early in the day or later in the day at the cooler time of the day. It'd be kind of like today, it would. like a group of girlfriends meeting at a local coffee shop to socialize. So it was very uh, a place of socialization. People would socialize, the women would socialize in gathering water. This woman whose reputation seems to have been well known in the small town, we see that in verse 18, and then as you continue to read the story, probably chose the well further away from home, which was a half mile away from her home, which is interesting. Imagine, heat of the day, going out to retrieve water, It's super hot. You walk a half mile in this heat and came to it at this unusual hour in an effort to avoid people because of of guilt and shame that she had in her life. She didn't want to socialize. She didn't want to interact with people. She couldn't bear to look people in the eyes. And so why was the Samaritan woman extremely surprised as were the disciples at Jesus' interaction with her. Well, Jews would not speak to Samaritans because of their extreme racial animosity. We already talked about that. But also, here's another interesting truth, is that men would not speak to women in public in this patriarchal society. They wouldn't even uh, speak to their own wives. And so my wife and I have adapted that policy in our house. <laughs> and uh, the problem is is that my wife can't keep me quiet because I not want to talk with her. She says, "Oh." don't talk to me, we're not interacting here, no, we haven't done that, it it seems weird, doesn't it? And that's what they did, Um, and it was the low, it it was their low view of women actually in in these days was part of that, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Here's another thing is that for Jesus to ask for a drink from a moral social outcast, outcast would be scandalous. I mean, this, this would be the cultural uh, equivalent of the Jim Crow laws in the tragic history of our nation. We don't drink from those water fountains, we don't eat with those people because they're unclean. That's, that's the atmosphere here. So this woman is an outcast among outcasts, filled with shame, feeling rejected and lonely. I love this story. As I was studying this story, uh, several times I just, I, I cried, I just, it just brought me to tears. It was overwhelming to begin to see our Savior reach out to her. I mean, we have a front row seat as we read this. You wanna know what God's like? <laughs> Look at Jesus. I mean, it, it is breathtaking. It's overwhelming how he reaches, reaches out to this woman who's broken by sin and suffering. Doesn't even want to socialize with anybody else. She feels like she's an outcast, she's been rejected, she's all alone, and our Savior reaches out to her in such a loving way. Jesus tenderly reaches through every barrier to touch this woman's heart. I mean, this is revealing the loving, relational inclusivity of the gospel. Ultimate satisfaction is available to all. Here's your next fill in the blank on your notes. God has no social, gender, uh, no racial, gender, social, or moral favorites. That's what we learned from this text. There's no pecking order in the kingdom of God. There's no privileged people. And in fact, Luke 19.10 says, Jesus came to seek and to save those that are lost. Who are the lost? All of us, everyone. He came to seek all of us, every one of us. That's what Jesus came to do. 2 Peter 3.9, it says that God is not willing that any should perish but all come to repentance. That's the Father heart of God. Jesus is demonstrating it right here as he's reaching out to her. And so God has no racial, gender, social, moral favorites because ultimate satisfaction, salvation is not achieved but received. We're gonna read that in verse 10, it's a gift from God. Here's the next point on your notes. We must be the good news before we share the good news. That's what we see in Jesus. It's absolutely amazing as we see Jesus putting on full display you know, who he is and he's really showing us the Father heart of God we must be the good news before we share the good news. Luke seven thirty four, it tells us that Jesus was known as a friend of what? Anybody? Friend of sinners. And that was a derogatory statement made about Jesus by the leaders, the religious leaders of that day. Ah, oh, he's a friend of sinners. And I'm thinking, <laughs> yes, I'm so glad he's a friend of sinners because I'm one and that's, That's what we're seeing here. Now, what was interesting about Jesus, and it's really helpful in our understanding of evangelism, is next week I'll talk about this contagious love of the woman because her life is so impacted, she goes back to her town and tells everybody about this encounter she had with Jesus and literally turns that, that town upside down. Many people come to faith because of this contagious love that she has experienced through Jesus Christ. And so what we see with Jesus is that he was radically different from the culture, and yet at the same time, he could radically identify with the culture. He could do both at the same time as a friend of sinners. You see, if you're radically, if you're radically different from the culture and yet unable to radically identify with the culture, you have a message, but you don't have an audience. On the other hand, if, you're, if you radically identify with the culture, but you're not radically different from the culture, you have an audience, but no message. So, so you have to have the combination of both, where you have both an audience, but you also have a message. And, and that's, that's what you see in Jesus. It says in John 3.17, most of us know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it goes on, 17 says, but God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Do you hear what he's saying there? Jesus didn't come to this earth with pointed fingers of accusation. He came with open arms. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to invite us to have a life that most people only dream about, to know Him, to experience the Father. I mean, it's out of this world. It's absolutely amazing what we have in Him. And so, ultimate satisfaction is available to all. God has no racial, gender, social, or moral favorites. We must meet the good news before we share the good news. Here's the next one. Love bypasses barriers and captures hearts. That's what we're gonna see in the life of Christ. What are the barriers? Racial, gender, social, and moral. He cut right through those and he captured her heart. John 13, John 13, 34 through 35 tells us what we should be, what we as Christians should be characterized by. We should be characterized by what, anybody? By love, by our love for one another. And it's because of his love for us. Love one another as I have loved you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Jesus is demonstrating it right here. Beautiful. So ultimate satisfaction is available to all. That's the first point. Here's the next point. Ultimate satisfaction comes only in Christ. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her. Now, now re- remember, she's responding by going, I can't believe that you're even interacting with me. And so Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See, Jesus isn't put off. You're never going to see him put off or take it personally, what she has to say, no matter what she does, how she responds. He continues to be loving and gentle and continues to come after her, to love her and to draw her out and to almost kind of like peel back the layers to get down to that deep part of her heart and her soul. If you only knew the gift, I love that. I, I've thought about that. Just, he's just saying... Well, I can't believe you're talking to me. Man, if you had any idea, if you only had, if you had any idea of the gift that I could give you, you would ask me, and you could have living water. Notice how she, she responds. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And it almost comes off like she, this next part almost, she comes off a little like she's a little bit snarky. Like, he's, like she's going to give Jesus a lesson in history. Listen to what she says. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. A little history lesson, Jesus. Did you know that? <laughs> of course he did. He's the creator. Verse 13. Notice how Jesus responds. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That's a really profound statement. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Okay, in these statements, he gives an argument, an offer, and a challenge. It's on your notes there. Here's the argument. Here's the argument. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. That's verse 13. This should be written over every accomplishment, achievement, acquisition, career, college education, family, marriage, child, friend, church. Drink of this water, you're gonna be thirsty again. Should be written over everything, all of our pursuits, everything on this planet Earth. The next uh, wedding that I perform, I'll have the couple sit there and look at each other, and I'm going to say, hey, you see her? Drink of this water. You're going to be thirsty again, dude, okay? (laughs) Does that sound rude? No, that's reality. Don't try to get from her what you should be getting from God, or you're going to mess this whole thing up. So that's, that's the argument. Here's the offer. Drink of the water that I give you, and you'll never be thirsty again. Do you hear that? That's verse 14, ultimate satisfaction, contentment. No matter what's going on in your life, you can have a contentment, you can have a satisfaction in Christ Jesus. He's offering that to us. I mean, this is out of this world. Who says that? Your creator, your maker, the one that loves you more than anybody loves you and knows you. Now, what does this mean, drink of this living water? John 7, as we continue to work our way through the Gospel of John, when we hit John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, we know that he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit because he talks about how this rivers of living water flowing from within you, and he says, oh, by the way, he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. So he gives us some commentary there. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But this metaphor of water, I, I love this. This is a beautiful picture in this arid, dry, desert region. And Jesus is saying, what water is to you physically, I am to you spiritually. Without water, you will die. Without me, you will die, is what he's saying. And we know, living in the desert, how important water is, don't we? Okay. It's a couple of you raised hand. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, we're going to have to have a lesson on uh, water intake, being hydrated, okay. In the winter, we don't probably drink as much water as we should, but when we hit the summertime, I mean, we're down in water like crazy. And so we can live about 40 days without food, but only a few days without water. We know that, and maybe even a few hours here, here in the desert. In fact, let me ask you this question. What happens to people who come to Phoenix in June, July, and August, and decide they want to hike Camelback Mountain in the middle of the day? Anybody know what happens? Just watch the news. They get a very expensive helicopter ride to the local hospital ER and they might die, and I've seen people die. That's, that's insane, it's just absolutely crazy. I heard someone say that June, July, and August are the beast, the false prophet, and the antichrist of the book of Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what's interesting is that you know, a lot of people that aren't familiar with this, they come this time of the year and they go, oh, this is gorgeous, you guys have a beautiful place. Come back June, July, and August, okay, and tell us that. And, and if you've been, a, you, I was raised here, so I've been here my whole life, and it still beats me down. When I hit September, I'm thinking, when is this gonna end? It just wears you out. You're just drinking all kinds of water. You can't drink enough water. Here's another uh, question. What do you do when you see someone jogging in the middle of the day in June, July, and August? You pray (laughs) and you call 911 because they're suicidal. Um, seriously, that's that's insane. From time to time, I'll see people like that. It won't be me either. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to go out there at that time. So, so water, water is cleansing, refreshing, invigorating. When I look at the characteristics of water, and he's using this as a metaphor, water is cleansing, it's refreshing, it's invigorating, it's life-giving. When you head up north, and it's still, you see the desert. You see the cactus, and then you'll see a little place where there's like really lush trees. You have to know, that must be water over there. And so it's life-giving. Water is satisfying. Absolutely a necessity for survival, especially in the desert. So what does this mean, drinking this living water? I think he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's make it practical here just for a moment. I was meditating on Romans 8, 15 through 16 this last week this is how it goes it says for you have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received a spirit you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out abba father his spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of god Now, you hear what he's saying? So here's the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to drink from the the living water, is that you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you are a child of God, and he makes that real to you. The Holy Spirit makes the truth of who you are real to your heart, and it brings such stability and stamina and strength to be able to face anything in your life. And you begin to enjoy the wealth of the presence of God, the comfort of his love, the strength of his power, and the significance of being called a child of God. There's nothing quite like that. And I'm telling you you this, that that when it's more than just a concept in your head, but it becomes a reality in your heart, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. You're able to face really hard times, difficult times, crazy times, like what we've been facing. By the way, I'm convinced it's going to get crazier. And it's only through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit are you going to be able to get through those times. And you have to have the assurance, the assurance that you are a child of God, if you have that assurance. I'm telling you, bring it on, man. Bring on the hard times because it doesn't matter. My daddy in heaven loves me, adores me. He's going to take care of me. He's always looking after me and he, he has my best interest at heart, always, always. When you have that assurance, oh my goodness, that's drinking from the living water. Nothing more practical. So I'm sure you could apply other verses to that. So you got the argument. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Offer, drink of the water that I give you, and you'll never be thirsty again. Here's the challenge. It is a gift from God that we must ask Christ for. That's in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God. Now, this is what separates Christianity from every other major religion. Every other major religion, cult in our world today, it's not a gift. You have to earn it. You have to achieve it. You have to accomplish it. Christianity, it's a gift. It's a gift of God. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would ask him for this drink of living water. So this living water, ultimate satisfaction, salvation is not a wage we earn, but a gift we receive. So what disqualifies you from receiving a wage? Not doing the work. What disqualifies you from receiving a gift? Only pride. I don't need your charity. You don't see her do this. Although she is pushing back a bit, Jesus is having to peel back the layers in her life. But she she doesn't say, I don't need your charity. Get out of here. That'll keep you from receiving the gift. It's called pride. Romans 10, 13 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's all you need to do is call upon the name of the Lord. You acknowledge your sin that separates you from God. You believe that Christ died in your place for your sins, and you confess him as Lord and Savior. You give your life to him. That's the most decision, most important decision you'll ever make for time and for eternity, It's to come and drink from that living water. It's a, it's a relationship with the creator of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ, and the work of his Holy Spirit within our lives. That's the challenge. It is a gift from God that we must ask Christ for. So ultimate satisfaction is available to all, comes only in Christ, and now, but there's some problems here, and this is what keeps us from the living water. This is what's keeping her from the living water, our defense mechanisms. Ultimate satisfaction must get below our defense mechanisms. That's your next fill in the blank. Now, what are these defense mechanisms? We talked about some of these defense mechanisms. uh, The second weekend of this new year, I talked about truth in that series, Wholeness in a Broken World. First weekend, we talked about brokenness, and the second weekend, we talked about truth. And in that, we used this text, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. and that's about strongholds. Strongholds are those things, those defense mechanisms in our life that keep us from experiencing the living water. Now let me give you a definition for these defense mechanisms or strongholds. Defense mechanisms are unhealthy ways of dealing with the overwhelming thoughts and feelings of unresolved past hurts. So a quick show of hands, let's do a survey here. How many here, by show of hands, have never ever or don't have any past hurts. You don't have any past hurts. Show of hands, no one, anybody? You don't have any past hurts, okay? Okay. I mean, I could see maybe a, maybe a five-year-old or a 10-year-old saying, yeah, I don't have any past hurts. We'll just say, okay, just wait, <laughs> it'll happen. But no, 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 everyone has past hurts. Now, the, the issue is how have you dealt with those things? See, when Jesus taught us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, there's a section in there he's helping us to deal with past hurts, past sins, past hurts, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those that have sinned against us. And so if we haven't worked through that regularly, daily, we develop these defense mechanisms, unhealthy ways to deal with the the negative thoughts and feelings that rise up because of past hurts, because they haven't been really fully resolved in our life. So Anytime we have those negative thoughts and feelings, it's just reminding us that I, I still have some soul work that needs to be done. The problem is, is that when I don't do the soul work, I build these defense mechanisms because I get tired of feeling bad about myself. That's what she's doing. She's experiencing this. She's not only avoiding people, but she's built these defense mechanisms that when, when she does encounter someone and they begin to probe a little bit deeper in her life, she puts up the wall. And You see that. And we all tend to do that. And, and therefore keeps us away from the living, the living water. So when, when you have those th- triggers go off in your life, when someone mentions someone's name, or you see someone in the marketplace, you know, you're at Costco and you, go, you start avoiding them, <laughs> you know, and you, you keep the mask up and you wear sunglasses because that's, that's a perfect way to kind of avoid people, to hide, they don't even know, you, they, they don't know who you are. Wear a ball cap too. I'd have to, Okay. So you just kind of hide being, what, is, what in the world's going on? I've never done that, by the way. <laughs> Actually, I have. And, uh, but, but we all tend to do that. What's going on? That's triggering something up. It's bringing up negative thoughts and emotions. We don't want to face those, so we build these defense mechanisms. Let's take a look at the defense mechanisms that, that she has here. Now, keep in mind... This woman is extremely dehydrated spiritually. No one has ever poured life into this woman. All that men have done is taken life from this woman. Now you need to keep in mind that women in this culture were uh, considered property, very low view of women, and they could be divorced with the slightest offense. She burnt my toast, she's out of here, okay? That's that's how slight. And so men could just discard women just like that. And so this woman had been used and abused by men. And women needed really a a male in their life uh, for their economics, for their survival. And so here's a woman, when you read it, you think, oh yeah, she's just using men and abusing. No, 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 she's, she's the one that's being abused. In this culture, all that men have done is taken life from this woman Here's what I've learned, kind of generally speaking, in our culture, men give love to get sex and women give sex to get love. That's our culture. Look at verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, this, we, go, we go back to these verses because I think this is a defense mechanism. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater? This is that kind of snarky attitude. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. This is pride, that's your next fill in the blank, pride, critical, condescending, condemning. So anytime you're interacting with someone and they they put a wall of pride up, they're condemning, they're condescending, it's because they have hurt deep inside of them. It's a wall to keep you at bay. That's what she's doing. And so then Jesus responds by saying, drink of this water, you'll be thirsty again. Drink of the water that I give you, you'll never be thirsty. She responds in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Here's your next um, defense mechanism, preoccupation with physical needs to the exclusion of other needs. Other needs would be soul and spirit. Now we all tend to do that. If we get overwhelmed spiritually and with our soul, we've been so beat up by life over time, I can't manage that well, so I'm going to ignore it, and I'm going to focus on my physical well-being. I'm going to eat right. I'm going to sleep well. I'm going to do all these things, and and it almost become a preoccupation to the exclusion of other things. I see that happen. I've even done it. I can't deal with that, but I can control this part of my life. I can control my work life, so I'm going to throw myself into my work life. I haven't dealt with those past issues, but if I throw myself into the work life, I'll be preoccupied and this will never come up. No, that's not true. It's just a matter of time, it's gonna raise its ugly head. And what I find interesting that our culture, we're so preoccupied with, with what we eat, you know, physically, and exercise, and diet, and all these other things, or in our job performance, and any number of things, and yet we don't give much thought to our soul and our spirit and the things we're consuming in social media and on the internet and in movies. And we're not dealing with that part of our life. It's a preoccupation that distracts us from the deep pain that's deep within us over the years of, of hurt and heartache. That's what she's doing. And so Jesus said to her, and keep in mind, I mean, the tenderness of Jesus, go call your husband and, and come here. <laughs> I love this. Jesus knew that she, she didn't have a husband. He could have said, hey, go call your boyfriend. I know you're just jacking up with this dude. And, so go call him and come here and then we'll talk more. But he doesn't. He goes, goes right To go call your husband and come here. And it seems like Jesus is trying to change the subject, but he isn't. He's trying to show her that this living water is what she has been trying to find in men. He's peeling back the layers, helping her to see deeper into her soul. She's afraid to look inside. She can't manage it. She can't deal with it. And yet he's trying to help her to see her struggle and the solution to that struggle, and the woman answered, I have no husband. It's almost like, I had no husband, get away from me. That's enough, let's move on, Jesus. What's that? That's a defense mechanism of pretense. She told the truth, but not the whole truth. That's true, she has no husband. So sometimes we'll just give really quick answers to somebody, just put them at bay, push them back. This is what we need to keep in mind. There is no healing in hiding. You're not gonna get healed up unless you open up to a few close trusted friends and begin to share with them what your struggles are so they can love you and encourage you and help you to connect with our Savior. And Jesus said to her, so she said, I have no husband. (laughs) Listen to this. You are right in saying, I have no husband. Now, not the slightest bit of shame here from our Savior. It's beautiful, it's breathtaking. You are right in saying you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. I've told you this over and over again that when the Holy Spirit convicts us, He's not shaming us, He's wooing us to set us free and to satisfy the deepest longing in our heart. So, as you're studying God's Word, and all of a sudden, boom, that's me, E, I've got that sin. It doesn't come in the form of condemnation. It's coming in the form of conviction to draw your heart in closer to Christ who is the solution to all of our problems, to all of our issues. He loves us. He's drawing us in. He wants to set us free. He wants to set you free.
0: It's beautiful.
1: I, I, I wish more Christians would learn this and see this and experience Experience this. It's just it's, it's breathtaking because that's how we should interact with people that are that are broken. The woman said to him, "Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet." <laughs> of course, yeah. You just read my mail. You know everything about me. Oh my goodness, you just exposed me. That's what she's thinking. She goes, "Oh my goodness, how did you know this about me?" I mean, she's blown away, and then immediately she almost like she's kind of doing a little. Uh, Deflection here. I'm going to call it pandering, but, but our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but, but you say that in Jerusalem, in the place where people ought to, ought to worship. this where they should, uh, should worship. And so here's the next, next one is pandering. This is a defense mechanism. It means to please other people by saying what you think they want you to say. That's a good way to put people back. Oh, okay, this is probably what they want to say, want to hear. So I'll just say this. This will push him back. And so this is just a short list, pride, preoccupation, pretense, pandering, defense mechanisms, keeping people away, keeping people pushed back. You could add to that list. You need to identify what your defense mechanisms are in wrongly dealing with your past hurts and the negative emotions and feelings and thoughts that those bring up in your life. And keep in mind, when those come to the surface in your life, it's just a work of the Holy Spirit to say, hey, you need some soul care. Get some help. Get some help. Now, let me talk just very briefly about evangelism because next week we'll talk a little bit more about this, but evangelism is deeply personal and relational. It's not mechanical, it's not one size fits all. When we go back to John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, remember what Jesus did there? He's very direct with Nicodemus in dealing with his pride, his superiority, and he just says to him, "You must be born again." Nicodemus, all of your good works, all of your religious activity doesn't earn a right standing in my kingdom. You need to become like a little child to enter it and to see the kingdom. So he's very direct with him, but he's very indirect with the, the Samaritan woman in this John chapter four in dealing with her brokenness, her feelings of inferiority. I have living water for you. So Jesus is showing us how to deal with religious people and your religious people. People with an attitude of superiority, people with an attitude of inferiority. It's beautiful. So ultimate satisfaction is available to all, comes only in Christ, must be, must get below our defense mechanisms. Here's the last part is experienced through worshiping Christ. I love how John, as he's kind of walking us through this story and then he brings us to this place of worship. Now the word worship is used 10 times in this text. Let me read through the text from verses 21 all the way to the end of our text, verse 26. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. That's true, God God chose the Jews to bless them so that they would be a blessing to the world, so that the world could experience what the Jews were experiencing. And so, but the hour is coming, and now here when the true worshipers, I love that, there's false worshipers, there's true worshipers, that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I love that too. He's seeking, he's here seeking you out this morning. He's seeking such people to worship Him. What does that mean? He's inviting us to find our ultimate satisfaction in Him. He's seeking people to worship Him in spirit and truth, to find ultimate satisfaction in Christ Jesus. That's the invitation. He's seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Here's the last three thoughts from this study. We were made to worship. We were made to worship. Exodus 23 goes through the Ten Commandments. And the very first of the Ten Commandments says, You shall have no other gods before me. I don't know if you've noticed this, that when you read that, he doesn't give a third option. Did you notice that? No third option there. What do you mean by that, Pastor Ray? You'll either worship the one and true and living God or you'll have a counterfeit God. But you won't have a God. Everyone has a God. That's what he's saying. Why? Because we were made to worship. We were made to worship. The world isn't divided into those who worship and those who don't worship, it's divided into those who worship the creator and those who worship something created. See, our tendency, our sinful nature is Romans 1.25, we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the creator, that's what we do. So this woman at the well is a worshiper just like all of us and she is worshiping male affection, evidently, or maybe security. Here's the next thing, we drink from the living water by worshiping God in spirit and in truth. So in verse 14, when he talks about drinking from this living water, what does he mean? Well, verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So you drink from the living water when you begin to worship God in spirit and truth through the work of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means that when, you, when we gather together and we're singing these songs, It's just not all in your mind. You're not thinking about these things mentally, but it stirs you emotionally. That would be spirit, passion. The more you reflect on who Christ is and what he's done for you, it should move you and stir you and motivate you. It should send you to the skies and and thanksgiving and delight and praise. But also when you're watching a sunset or eating your favorite food, food. It should be an opportunity to worship God, to know that every good and perfect gift comes from him. God, thank you for all these wonderful gifts. But God, you are even better than all of these gifts. Thank you that you are in my life. Jesus said this in Matthew 15, 8 through 9, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So what is he saying? We can go just through the motions throughout the day. Oh yeah, I love God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I, I sang those songs at church. Yeah, we, we studied that text and have no sense of emotion or stirring within your heart or any kind of an encounter with him. You just check the church box. You're just going through the motions without any emotion. That's what he's talking about. These people worship me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. You see, who Christ is and what he has done, that's the truth, must become more beautiful to your imagination and more attractive to your heart than anything else. That's spirit. And here's how I know it works. It's worship rises or falls with our concept of God. If your worship is flat, you have a very low concept of God. But if you begin to look at what the Scripture says about who God is, oh my goodness, your worship will soar. And what does that mean? Here's the last point. Worship is treasuring, assessing the value, and reflecting on the beauty and glory of Christ until my heart rests in Him and releases its grip on anything I think I can't live without. I do this every day. I have to do it every week. I I would not survive the day or the week or the month or the year if I didn't do that. I'm telling you, sometimes my heart is so restless, so filled with anxiety, and and I need to work through that. And when I begin to, to treasure and assess the value and reflect on the beauty and the glory of who Christ is, oh my goodness, my heart rests. His love chases away the fears And then I'm able to release the grip on anything I can't live without. You see, she worshipped her way into trouble. She was worshipping men or the security that men brought or any number of things. But the only way that she's going to get out of that is that she must worship her way out. And so do we. I wrote a list of, um, of how we are a lot like this woman at the well. All of us are. All of us are the woman at the well in one way or another, and so I kind of went through just a list. This is a short list. There's eight items on here. But if you find yourself in a cycle of bad relationships, such as the woman at the well, you are worshiping the God of male or female affection. If you find yourself codependent, need to be needed, you are worshiping the God of human approval or people-pleasing. If you find yourself a workaholic, you are worshiping the God of money, status, or achievement. If you find yourself uh, with an eating disorder or or hooked on pornography, you are worshiping the God of beauty and image. If you find yourself emotionally dependent, jealous and controlling in a marriage relationship, you are worshiping the God of the perfect marriage relationship, trying to find that deep soul satisfaction in that marriage relationship as opposed to, to Christ. If you find yourself paranoid over the direction or decisions of your children, you are worshiping the God of your children's happiness and being, or being seen as that perfect parent. When you find yourself unforgiving, critical, judgmental and joyless as a Christian, you are worshiping the God of religion, legalism and Phariseeism. If you find yourself seeing opponents to your politics, not just mistaken, but evil, you are worshiping the God of Politics to save the day. That's a short list. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says here at the very end of your notes. We are half-hearted creatures, fulling with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are far, we are far too easily pleased. I'm telling you, ultimate satisfaction. Is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one and nothing can satisfy you like him. <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful, absolutely amazing. Next weekend, we'll talk about this contagious love of the woman, John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. I'd encourage you to read ahead. If you're new here at Desert Breeze, uh, my wife and I will be up in the front at the end of the service along with other uh, available elders. And uh, we would love to meet you. If you need prayer for any particular reason, we would love to pray with you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So Father God, we are so very thankful and forever indebted to you that by grace through faith in your Son, we can drink from the well of living water, a water that is spiritually cleansing and refreshing and invigorating and life-giving and satisfying and absolutely necessary in this very dry desert of life. We confess our sinful nature of of the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water, Christ, for temporal wells that can never ultimately satisfy. Jesus, overcome our defense mechanisms with your tender love and truth. And may you be most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in you. We pray these things in Jesus's beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.